You sure do. All right, I'm going to go. Ready? Go for it. Welcome, everybody, to New Polities Podcast. I am joined today by Ruben or with what's your your you are our editor par excellence here i'm joined by ruben slife there we go um a fellow the fourth editor of new polity and we are here carrying on the political saints podcast which i am very very excited that we're doing and we um, are actually starting we're not publishing all these in order but we're starting with blessed franz jaegerstater and so i'm really you you know what happened because everybody has probably heard of Blessed Franz Jaegerstater. I mean, he's like one of the famous ones, like St. Augustine, St. <laughs> Francis. Yes, yes. Uh, the people who have heard of Franz Jaegerstater don't know they have, because there's a movie about him in which his name is basically never used. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a hidden life. Um, but just to give you kind of a 10-second overview for why people should be paying attention to Blessed Franz Jaegerstater, he was a quiet farmer. Mm -hmm. from a predominantly Catholic town in yes. Austria. And yet, he was the only person in his village that refused to swear an oath to Hitler. Yes. And for that, he was beheaded. Yes, he was executed for it. And I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of us would like his fellow villagers denounce him for that action. It's so easy to say he denounced Hitler he was against him. Yeah, obviously, that's the thing to do. And yet, I think as we're going to explore into his history mm -hmm. and his life, we're going to see exactly why we would not have done what he did mm -hmm. and why now we need him more than ever to be an exemplar for us, as, as canonized saints are, to be. Beatified, and in his case. Beatified, yeah. He's working his way up there, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And... Um, uh, and and so they ask his aid to to give us the the vision of Christendom that he had, of the yes. faith that he had, so as to do what he did. All right, one last little plug for Blessed Franz before you are going to tell us all about him. Um, this is from the, uh, the the Bishop of Linz, which is the diocese where he was from, uh, in two thousand seven. Just in advance of the beatification, there was a, a book put out in Germany uh, written by Erna Putz, who uh, was his biographer. And it had a brief introduction by the man who was at that point the Bishop of Linz uh, endorsing the book. And he says a few words about um, the importance of, of Jägerstädter. Here we go. Franz Jägerstädter himself venerated the saints and saw them as guides, and he charted his own path in the footsteps of these intercessors and role models. As a witness to the Beatitudes, he gives the gospel a human face. In this way, he can inspire people today to stay the path of the gospel. He looks at the church from the perspective of the kingdom of God, of becoming Jesus' successors, and of open commitment to Jesus. Shouldn't we Christians become true successors of Christ? It's a quote from him. Franz Jägerstädter also precipitates a crisis, a judgment on present-day styles of life and belief. A too rapid familiarity with Jägerstädter would carry the risk of his being merely absorbed and neutralized and also of kitchifying him, making him quaint, as happens in the case of quite a few saints. So, let's not kitchify this guy. Let's try. All right. <laughs> Who was he? <laughs> um, well, as you said, he was an Austrian peasant farmer, 
uh, from a very small town in north northwest Austria, just over the river uh, from Bavaria, so very close to Germany. Bavaria is also a very Catholic region of Germany. Um, Joseph Ratzinger, later Benedict XVI, was from there. And in the early 30s, he and uh, his mother, I think, would sometimes take walks uh, across, across the river. I guess there was a bridge. And they'd, they'd walk around near St. Radegund, the village that uh, Blessed Franz was from. He was born in 1907, um, and he was an illegitimate child. Uh, his mother did not end up marrying his father. Uh, which was a, a bit uncommon at that time in that place. Illegitimate children were not too uncommon, but normally the, the parents married shortly afterwards. Uh, she did not marry for 10 more years. He was uh, nine, just before his 10th birthday in 1917. She married a man named Heinrich Jägerstädter, who was not his father, um, but he adopted him. And from his stepfather, he got a, a, a bit of a love of reading. Um, Jägerstädter was not a good student. <laughs> he, <laughs> But he got top marks in gym. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't recall that. Um, he was in school for only seven years, from the age of seven to 14, in a one-room schoolhouse. Mm. And uh, in one of his, his writings, at the end, he says, forgive my, my writing and spelling. In school, I was a lazy student. <laughs> uh, but he loved to read. And he got that from his stepfather. And he uh, liked a lot of other things besides reading. Uh, <laughs> like women. <laughs> yes. He had a reputation as a, a rowdy youth. I don't, I don't know if people use the word youth more in Austria than they do here. It sounds kind of poncy over here. But um, <laughs> he, was, he was rowdy and uh, a little more so than the average young man. But people liked him for it. It was considered to be his good characteristic. He was just an all-around fine guy, but not not a moral guy. Um, at age 20, 1927, he left home, left St. Radegund for three years, returned in 1930, did, did various things uh, during that absence. He uh, worked at farms elsewhere. He worked in an iron mine. It's not clear to me why he left. Stories seem to differ. Um, it appears to have been uh, involuntary. Mm. He appears to have been forced to leave uh, from a dispute among two young men in the town, one of them being him, uh, over the affections of a particular girl, <laughs> which then ramified out into the other young men. There were sort of gangs, <laughs> even in the small Austrian towns, that they'd go and fight each other from the neighboring villages. And it was kind of all in fun, but that doesn't mean that people didn't get seriously hurt. Uh, but it looks like everyone ended up taking sides in this particular dispute. Um, and the village seems to have, in a sort of low-key way, exiled the two boys who were competing for the girls' attentions to, to stop the thing, and, and he was one of them. But it's not it's not certain, as far as I can tell, that that's what happened. But he, he appears to have been not allowed back in for a while. <laughs> anyway, he went out, worked in an iron mine, um, and bought a motorcycle. He was the first owner of a motorcycle in his village when he came back, came back on a motorcycle, and that, that excited some attention. His, I mean, you look like a god. You're the first guy <laughs> in yeah, your small town. farming town. Yeah, coming on a motorcycle. I don't, I don't know about the the leather jacket, but I, I would believe it. <laughs> his his um he hmm can't think what she was an aunt a grandmother 
uh, the woman who raised him for a while when when because his mother as as a single mother had to work because he was he was mm-hmm. raised by someone else and she was very before before his step before his mother married that is he yeah. was raised by someone else and that woman was very religious was known sometimes to spend all night outside praying at one of the the roadside shrines uh, they have over there and uh she was also known to be rather stubborn and uh nonconformist and so there, there's there's some talk in in the village um about that characteristic having been inherited uh, the only reason we know about Jaegerstater this is a bit of a parenthesis is because of an american sociologist that's it's not normally the case that saints would be unknown to us except for american sociologists um, like finally they did something good <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's um, why they exist yeah, all right yeah. um, but th- this man was in austria in the 1960s doing work on non-conformism to to the, the whole nazi thing and heard the story of jaegerstater and thought well that that deserves its own book and so he actually wrote the book he was writing at the time, and then wrote a second book on Jaegerstater in 1964. And so he went to the village of St. Rodigand and interviewed people, and they they pointed out to him that, oh, yes, well, he inherited this from the, that side of the family, the, the Huber, his mother's maiden name, um, side of the family, this stubbornness and nonconformity. And he, you know, is forced out of town because of roughness and maybe some womanizing and then comes back with a motorcycle. But everybody uh, loved him. Yes. I mean, this is the funny thing. It's yes. like, all right, you know, you're a good kid. Get out of here for a little while. You're trying, you're causing a bit too much trouble. But they, they loved his rowdiness. They mm-hmm. loved, like, I mean, they were even joking about kind of his his womanizing. Yes, they actually know. liked it more than his sanctity, as, yeah. as we will get to in, <laughs> in a second. Uh, and he did come back slightly more religious when he came back in 1930. But um, how... How slightly, it's hard to say, uh, how non-slightly, because he, <laughs> he then had an illegitimate child himself mm-hmm. in 1933, a, uh, a girl named Hildegard, Hildegard Auer. My apologies to everyone German. I'm going to butcher all of this. <laughs> uh, and... So this is not a great start. No, you know? <laughs> this is this is not this is not. You, know, you sometimes read about the saints and they have these extremely pious, like Saint Catherine of Siena. Like yeah. from a little girl, she's like you know she's fasting from her mother's breast milk, you know, and stuff like that. And really, yes, wow, okay. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you can see uh, Blessed Franz also enjoying the celestial heights yeah. with the start of being There's... like too rowdy. Exiled from his town, yeah. illegitimate child. But after do- the exile. After- <laughs> and and then he doesn't marry that woman either. Mm-hmm. So that, that's another unusual thing. And he didn't get pushed out of town for that. That was that was frowned upon. Uh and uh in, in culturally it was frowned upon not to marry the girl, but he didn't. Um I it's it's unclear a bit what the reasons were. It seems like his family and her family would not permit it. Mm. Um that seems to have been a bit of a turning point for him. 1933, maybe connected with the birth of that child. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1934, he was serious enough about his faith to consider becoming a lay brother. Um, How mature that impulse was, who knows? The the parish pastor there, Father uh, Karaboth, dissuaded him from it, saying he needed to stay and take care of his family's farm and take care of his his, uh, mother, who at this point was... 
uh, having some health problems. And he was also taking, paying, giving uh, care checks to the mother and daughter. Yes, yes, well, voluntarily. So, yeah. um, it was never legally settled. Mm-hmm. He uh, volunteered to do it. There was some doubt in the town among his friends and all that, whether he was really the father, but he appeared to have no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1934 started getting more more serious about his faith and his, his adoptive father, his stepfather died that year. Um, just before the age of 50. Yeah. And th- um, th- those are huge things. I mean, if anybody's had a kid, you know, like this gripping fear that comes over you right before he's born or she's born. And it's just like, oh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to take care? How mm-hmm. am I going to do this? And there's a great like sobriety that comes for a lot of us. That plus facing death, especially from somebody that kind of saved him and his mom. Yes. Is, uh, you know, that, yes. that snaps a guy out of something pretty quick. And it seems like... It started yes. to for him. And he actually spent, uh, when when Hildegard, the illegitimate daughter, was young, he spent more time with her than the mother did because the mother still had to work as a, uh, I, I can't remember quite what she was, housemaid, I think. Mm. And because of the situation, she ended up having to move further away, uh, I think, to get work. And so the girl was raised by the grandmother, and he was closer, and he would visit somewhat regularly. And the little girl uh, um, loved it. You know, I was coming on the motorcycle. We made it an event <laughs> and uh, would send uh, apples. He paid a lot of the alimony in, ter- in, in food, especially after the war started later on. And uh, he was known to send notes, you know, with a sack of apples and say the best apples are for Hildegard. <laughs> um, he got married himself in 1936 at the age of 28 to a woman named Francisca. So Franz and Francisca. <laughs> uh, and she was about six years younger than him. He was 28. He had not quite turned 29 yet when he got married. And she was 23. Um, and she was more religious than him and more, more consistently religious across time. Uh, when they first met, she was the one who raised the question to him of how often he attended church because <laughs> she wanted to know. And um, they had a, a rather short engagement. I think it was only about six months from the time they met to the time they were married. And there were reasons for that, like the the death of his stepfather. Someone needed to take care of the farm, and mm-hmm. um, with his mother being sick and various things, that, that just cultural reasons put some speed on it. Yep. Um, but they were not uh, very conformist either of them. Uh, they got married at six a.m. on Holy Thursday. That's actually what Alice and I did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 6 a.m. on Holy Thursday, they skipped a wedding reception, which was, I think, a bit offensive to the villagers because, you know, custom, you always have a wedding reception. They skipped it. <laughs> there was a party. Married yeah. at 6 a.m. and before noon were on a train to Rome. They went to Rome, which was also weird. No one went to Rome and that was a, a sign of uh, their their devotion. I mean, they went, they went other places. They went to Naples and Sorrento, so it wasn't all religious, <laughs> I imagine. Um, but... That was his idea. That was not Francisca's idea. She ag- agreed to it, but he was the one who said, hey, how about we go on this wild and crazy trip, which cost a lot of money. <laughs> um, and they'd planned to return, uh, go on another trip to Rome every 10 years on their wedding anniversary. And uh, they didn't because shortly after their seventh anniversary, he was killed. We'll get to that. Um, they had three daughters themselves. So he had four daughters uh, in total. Uh, 
they were married in 36, had a daughter in 37, in 38, and in 40. Um, and in 1940, he was called up for military training, and he went and he did that. Um, lasted till 1941, and he was sent back home. Being a farmer, it was deferment. You know, we need you to farm to support the war effort. Yeah, people need to eat. Which yeah. he didn't do, by the way. He did not support the war effort. He, um, you know, all the... Uh, we think of the Nazis as, like, a... Just just a political party. But there are all these associations. We know of the Hitler Youth. Yeah. Um, and I myself don't know too much about the various organizations. But there was, like, the you know, German Gymnastic Association, which was... A Nazi. Nazi thing. Uh, it was for gymnastics, but it was for Nazi gymnastics. And these were all over. There's a few more twists in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> so there were, there were all these sorts of organizations. People would come around with these red canisters asking for donations for this and that. And Franz, in one of his writings, says, I do not believe people contributed as much money to the church as they now contribute to the Nazis. And mm. the Nazis don't even need the money because they are the governments. They can just make more money whenever they want it. He, he, he says that. Um, but he didn't contribute to any of that. And he also refused to accept the funds. Um, from the you know, like child credit, he could have gotten a fair bit of money out of that, having three children, even though they were daughters. And I think the I don't know for sure, but I think the, the numbers were different for sons and daughters because mm. these were Nazis we're talking about. Um, <laughs> and so he wouldn't take the money. He wouldn't give the money. He supported people on his own. Um, even before uh, the, the Nazi takeover, uh, there was a, a woman uh, of his... Uh, acquaintance in the village whose husband died in an accident in 1935 and he supported the family uh, through just leaving food and leaving money on on one occasion at least 20 shillings which was an extraordinary sum of money uh, back then but he did this secretly he didn't identify himself he just left stuff and she managed to find out it was him and to the end of her life in 1989 she said that she and her children would have starved if it had not been for Franz. And you know, he was he was poor. He's a peasant farmer. Yeah. Um, and not taking the credits other people were receiving. So he he would not cooperate with the Nazi project. Um, why was I saying that? The military. Oh yes, not contributing to the war effort as a farmer. Mm. He was he was not. I think there might have been some tax stuff the government required you to give, but he wasn't doing anything above and beyond that. Um. So after that point, in 1941, he comes home, he's farming, and he doesn't know when he will be called up for actual military service. It could, whenever they decide that it's serious enough that they need to call up the farmers. Uh, and it lasted about two years. It was 1943. He was finally called up and he refused to serve. He went to the uh, place where you check in and said, I won't carry a weapon. And they arrested him and they put him in prison. Uh, he went on trial, if you can call it that. Uh, I mean, it was it was very formal. It looked like a trial, right. but they they weren't to them a crime was demoralizing the military. Or you know, the first questions they asked were, "Are you a member of the Nazi Party?" Which, of course, is legally irrelevant in any sort of mm. genuine sense. Yeah. Uh, and he was beheaded about six months after he was arrested. He was in the same prison as. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the latter part, yes. He was in two yeah. different prisons. Uh, yes, in the same prison at the same time yeah. as Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer mm. arrived shortly before he was executed, but no no evidence that they knew each other. Um, and I, I don't know how well they would have gotten along necessarily with Bonhoeffer being a Protestant. 
um, Franz was, was very much a Catholic. That's, that's his story in a nutshell, at least of, of his life. There's more yeah. one can say. But you, this, so it, it's in some senses, it's, it's very straightforward. You have a guy who has a rowdy past, sinful past. He repents, he converts, he becomes ex- extremely holy. People ask him to fight for Hitler. He says, no, Hitler's an evil guy. This is an unholy war. They, they say, well, we're going to kill you. He says, okay, off with his head. But, <laughs> yeah. but there was a lot of time spent trying to convince him, not just by the Nazi yes. party while he yes. was in prison, which because they were trying to convert him, not, not because they just needed another body, mm-hmm. but because that was a chink in their armor. Yes. Um, there, there are actually records, I, I found them the other day, from the military tribunal, which was trying the cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say that there was a distinction drawn even between refusing military service for political reasons. Let's say you were an Austrian mm-hmm. patriot and you wouldn't fight for Germany because you considered it Germany and not Austria. Yeah, They were more mild with that than with refusing military service for religious reasons. Because they considered that a fundamental affront to the situation because of the, the unlimited allegiance you were supposed to have yeah. to Hitler. And they also thought that that was more persuasive to other people. Yeah. And so they responded uniformly with the death penalty to any sort of religious resistance. Um, most of the people being executed for religious resistance were uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of all things, which I, I didn't know were big in Austria. <laughs> Apparently, they weren't. They weren't very big. One of Franz's um, cousins was a Jehovah's Witness. The only person who was not a Catholic uh, in the village of Saint Radegund. Apparently, oddly enough, he was raised by the same woman, the the aunt or, or grandmother. I, I can't remember what the relation was now, but uh, whoever it was who raised Franz, the, the stubborn woman who was very religious, she was Catholic, but the cousin ended up becoming a uh, Jehovah's Witness. In, in German, uh, at least in, in Austria, I don't, I don't know about elsewhere, they refer to them as uh, Bible students. That, that's the, the phrase. Uh, <laughs> the, those who study the Bible, because that, that's, they're always looking at it to figure out what to do. Um, but they're, they're pacifists. Right uh, on principle, they just do not serve in wars, mm-hmm. uh, at least until Armageddon happens. I think they're supposed to serve in that, but I, I, they're not going to have you know be well practiced though. That's a big <laughs> war. <laughs> they're not well, going to be ready for that, man. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. leaving that to one side. Now, actually, his cousin <laughs> did serve in the army. He he compromised the pacifism. His he, his his cousin, who was a Jehovah's yes, Witness, his yeah. cousin did serve, and he, as a Catholic, refused. Um, and the, the German military code actually for executing people for religious refusal to serve in the army is, uh, the, the Nazi code was, was Jehovah's Witness. And so in the, the record of Franz's death, the legal record, it says next to his name, Jehovah's Witness. Not as a description, but for the, his... That's his, just the legal yeah, code. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> that's really funny. That's close enough yeah. <laughs> to them. They, they, didn't, they didn't care. Okay, so what I want to do... Ruben, is I want to start to field some of these objections or see how Blessed Franz fielded some of the objections that he faced from the Nazis who were trying to convince him uh, to convert and to serve yeah. uh, from his family and from his villagers and see how he responded to each one of these. I, I do want to just jump back in the point that um, 
the Nazis were so alarmed by a total refusal because the only way that they ever had power was through the collective consent of the people. As soon as people no longer had fear, Mm -hmm. as soon as people no longer were trying to uh, protect themselves and and their long their life their their material life here yes. on earth then they had no power they didn't have any recourse mm-hmm. to a more fundamental desire to manipulate to pervert and to use in order to get people to serve them and so there was there was no nothing that they could do this mm-hmm. was terrifying to them and so that's why persuasion was such a big thing for them why they tried to convince Mm blessed franz precisely because they thought surely this can't be real surely we have not lost control and that's terrifying when you realize that you're no longer in control well well, it's also important because of the precise reasons people did support them i mean they gave reasons when they were arguing with them Mm -hmm. you should think about it this way you should think about it that way but fundamentally it was fear i think um, in Austria, right. anyway, and in this region of Austria, um, the, the the history, the precise history of how um, these people came to be arguing with him in favor of the Nazis is is interesting because they um, were not Nazis. His friends, his family, uh, the the priests, right? Like they, this was a highly Catholic region of Austria, and they actually did uh, resist the Nazis. Um, the the previous Bishop, um, when he was sorting through all of his stuff, there was a different bishop. The the previous bishop had died in 1941. He started really sorting through it about that same time. Um, But the previous bishop, I'm going to butcher the German again, uh, Bishop Gefulner, uh, was strongly opposed to the Nazis and gave speeches, issued documents to that effect. Somewhere here, uh, there it is, um, marked down some of what he said. Um, 1933, he put out uh, a letter to be read throughout the diocese saying Nazism is spiritually sick Mm. with materialistic racial delusions, unchristian nationalism, a nationalistic view of religion, you know, like the Chinese have now, the synthesizing religion, they were doing the same thing with, uh, does it fit the German spirit, with what is quite simply sham Christianity. We therefore reject its religious programs. All convinced Catholics must reject and condemn it. For if, as Pope Pius XI has declared, it is impossible to be both a good Catholic and a true socialist, then it is also impossible to be both a good Catholic and a true Nazi. As the bishop of the Diocese of Linz, where he lived... He's really mincing his words there. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, he, he referred to the whole racial purity thing as, quote, a backsliding into an abhorrent heathenism. The Nazi standpoint on race is completely incompatible with Christianity and must therefore be absolutely rejected. Um, there was a big outcry after, of course, he issued this. This was before the Nazis had taken over Austria. So that, that was 38, and this was 1933. Um, there was a big outcry, and he sent out a second letter. That was January 1933. This was March. He sent out a second letter in which he described the first letter as, quote, a probe which reveals the thoughts of the heart. <laughs> and said... That it was not a private viewpoint of the bishop, but an obligatory enunciation of church doctrine. And he reaffirmed that again in 1936. So the bishop there was very strongly against it, um, as were the priests. Um, the area around St. Radegund, uh, the um, nine 
uh, priests, for comparison, the Archdiocese of Vienna in Austria, which of course is the big one, nine priests were sent to concentration camps for various, you know, crimes of like preaching against Nazis and things. Um, the Diocese of Linz, where he was from, it's only half the size of Vienna. Forty were sent to concentration camps. It's unbelievable, yeah. Um, and that that is a much higher number even than in Bavaria. None of the none of the dioceses are getting that high over in Bavaria. Not even close. Um, and Bavaria also a very Catholic region. So th- there was a strong resistance to the Nazis here. Um, it says eleven percent of the priests in the diocese of Linz were given prison sentences during the Nazi period. Wow. Um, and the the deanery uh, the, 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 of Ostermiething, where he was, um, was also particularly high. Ten to eleven. Uh, of the priests were given sentences in that deanery alone. Um, and so that they were strongly opposed in the last free election held in Austria before the Anschluss. Um, no one in his region voted for the Nazi party. No one in, in the, the village of St. Radigund. There were other parties. No one voted for the Nazis, but when the Nazis took over in, in uh, I think it was January, of 1930? No, 30. March. March 1938. Yep. The Anschluss happened. Um, then the Nazis decided they would hold a, a, a plebiscite, a vote on whether people thought Austria should be Nazi. Of course, yeah, gun the, to tank, your head yeah, the tanks point. are already there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, moreover, it wasn't a secret ballot. Everybody knew how everyone was voting. It was going to be public. Um, everyone in the village of St. Radegund voted for the Nazis in that, except, except Franz. And he actually at first refused even to show up. They, they eventually convinced him to show up, but he showed up and voted no. And then when the results were submitted, the other villagers in charge of tabulating the results did not count his vote. <laughs> they said it was unanimous because they were, were trying to protect him. Yeah. So you, you mentioned fear. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that seems to me to be very much what it was. These were people who were not convinced Nazis. They were they were not in favor of it before the invasion. Mm-hmm. They were not in favor of it really after the invasion. I mean, that, that, that bishop died and the next bishop was much more wishy-washy. I mean, some people were in Austria. I mean, don't get me wrong. The, uh, cardinal Initzer was the main uh, cardinal, the cardinal of Vienna. He, when Hitler came in, went and greeted Hitler at the hotel, personally went. Um, the bishop of Linz ref- uh, Hitler came to Linz and the bishop refused even to see him, though Hitler came to the cathedral. But the cardinal archbishop of Vienna is going and greeting him personally at his hotel. There was a, a letter signed by the bishops about the Anschluss. Cardinal Innitzer signed it personally with the words Heil Hitler above his signature. Um, now, a few months later, he he apparently realized this was not gaining him anything. I mean, he he... Not only signed at Heil Hitler, he told the churches they had to, like, on Hitler's birthday, ring the bells and pray for Hitler and, and all this stuff. But a few months later, apparently they realized that wasn't getting him anything. <laughs> and he he did give a homily in, in which he uh, sort of walked it back and said, we must have faith in our, our Führer, which, which just means leader in German, because mm-hmm. we have but one Führer, and that is Jesus Christ. Wow. And uh, there was a lot of pushback from that. So he, I mean, he was trying to play both sides. But again, it was a, it was like a compromise thing. Even he was not you know, 
doctrinaire convinced Nazi. Right. No one seems to have been, especially the region where Franz was. But once the Nazis took over, people started trying to convince him to do the same thing everyone else was doing and go serve in the army, go get sent off to to fight against other peoples elsewhere. Yeah. So well, and I think that's a you know a good place to start as we're. You know, I made this big claim at the beginning that most of us would do what the average villager yes. would do. Like, we would not be doing what Pleasant Franz would be doing. Yes. So, I want to really start to look at all of these objections that, that he feels. The first one is this fear thing that, that you're saying. Uh, they're right here. They're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't seek your death. Just just go along with it. Don't try and compromise too much. Just, you know, like, they're they're... They're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, his response to that is pretty straightforward. I mean, he actually gives quite a classic line. He says, he points out what what, what you've just said, that the compromise, the change from 1937 to 1938 amongst his villagers was just purely out of fear. He says, um, let's consider an imaginary case. He asks this, he says, there are two individuals with roles in the, in the Nazi movement, who act in the same manner. Oh, yes. The first man regards what he does to be good and right, while the second considers the ideas, sacrifices, and struggles for Nazism to be unjust. The second individual believes, however, that he is far better than the first because he is not so convinced of things, even though he makes the same sacrifices and undergoes the same struggles at his co- as his colleague. Further, it does not matter to the second man whether the party for which he makes sacrifices and struggles has benefited from his actions or was harmed by them. The most important thing is what happens to him so that he does not suffer any physical harm. But his point is pretty clear here. Is that it doesn't matter what you're believing personally. Mm -hmm. What matters is that you're doing what they want you to do. Yes, and his point goes farther than that because uh, people were trying, as I mean, as as we all do still, uh, trying to just justify themselves on the basis of what they believe, saying, "Well, mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. I'm just doing it because I have to." And obviously, coercion does lower culpability. The question is, what's actually coercion? Right. Um, and is that? Oh, you know, it would be inconvenient for me if I didn't. I would suffer. Things would be taken away. Like if that if that's actually coercion in all cases, then everyone who apostatized under pressure, you know, in the early church was fine. And the martyrs were like especially strong people, but all the people who apostatized were just it wasn't really culpable because yeah. they were coerced. Right. Um and so the coercion as a as a technical I think psychological meaning, and it's not just is there pressure applied, but they're trying to justify themselves by saying, "Look, deep down, I didn't want to do it. I don't. I still don't want to do it. If I had my choice, I wouldn't be doing it." Yeah. And Franz not only says that that doesn't justify you, he goes further and says, "Well, that actually makes you more guilty, because the other man, if he sincerely believes it, may just be wrong." Now, he may be guilty for sincerely believing it, but he may also have reached that conclusion because he doesn't know enough to reach a different one. Right. But you, you do know more. You have reached a different one, and mm-hmm. you're doing it anyway. So of the two, he says, well, you're, you're actually worse. 
That's bad. So St. Thomas, when he's talking, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he's talking about the will, he says, discussing these levels of coercion, he says the thing, the the prime example of somebody who is uh, being forced to do something against his will is the person who's being physically dragged out of their home. You know, if if somebody did come up to you with a a gun to your door and says, get out, and you decide to walk out, then you have, to some degree, mm-hmm. willingly gone out. Yes. No, you're not obeying the person who has the gun yeah. to you, like fully, like trust, entrusting yourself right. to him. They are not really being obeyed. It is actually completely self-referential. And this is an important thing when we're talking about politics as a whole, yes. is that why are you following the leader? Is it because you trust him to lead you to a place where peace might be found, where virtue might be cultivated, or is it because you are self-interested? And, and, and Blessed Franz here is saying, realize what you're doing here. You are actually being vicious. And this is St. Thomas Aquinas' mm-hmm. conclusion too, is that that sort of fear-mongering only leads you to think about yourself, which is ultimately egocentric, mm-hmm. which is ultimately leading you further into yourself rather than into God and one another. So yes. that's his response. That's a pretty bold response. The, the whole category of willing against my will is, that's an odd one. You know, that's, yeah. that's why Aquinas appeals to being dragged. Right. You're not even doing the thing. Right. It, it's being done to you against your will. But to say, oh, I did it against my will is, it's an odd category. I don't know, there's some, there's some meaning there, but... Oh, oh, certainly there's, you know, in terms of tiers of, of cooperation and what whatnot, but but Blessed Fraud is trying to make it very clear. Yes. If you understand fundamentally that something's wrong, yeah. then your will should not be conformed to it in any manner. Right. You know? He's also trying to avoid all sin, personally. Yeah. Uh, which you can't say, oh, I'm a little, I'm only cooperating a little, so it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get, I think we'll, we'll get to that. We got to spend some serious time on that. Yeah. The second objection. So the first one is like, don't really believe it. Just go along with it. Second objection is, do you think you're really going to change anything? Do you really think that you're going to change anything? Like what are your actions? Or is like Nazism going to end because you're defying them? Is this war going to end because you're not fighting in it? Really? Yeah, you, you really think you you're the efficacious? One, the one peasant farmer they just can't do without. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So this is this is a sef- second objection. Is like, do you think your life is worthwhile? I mean, that's kind of nihilistic. I thought. It, it, how would you first? I mean, obviously, I'll read what what he how he fends that off. But what do you think of that objection first? I mean, I think it presupposes that the first objection works because mm. to say that I can't change anything is still not to make an argument that I should do it. Right. It, not. Cooperating may not change anything, but I know that cooperating does change me. Yeah. It, it makes me, it means that I did a thing that I shouldn't have done. Right. Um, it, 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 it mistakes the location of, of the problem. The, the problem is not, is it efficacious that I refuse? The question is, would it be sinful for me to comply? Yeah, and I think that's, this is the biggest um, paradigm shift that Blessed Franz offers us, like from the modern world of thinking about politics as changing stuff. Now, of course, in one real sense, 
politics from an abstract philosophical level, it is like activating certain potencies. Right. But in terms of actually like manipulating how kind of tectonic movements are going about, that's like, that's how we think about it. Like politics is moving armies. Politics is like changing uh, the way in which different businesses collaborate together mm. from a central point. Like these are the things of, of, yeah, it's only, of politics. It's only politics if it's efficacious. Right. If it has an effect out there. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, again, returning to St. Thomas Aquinas, we hear from him that the end of politics, the purpose of politics is virtue. Mm-hmm. It is actually, the, the, I mean, this is a crazy thing that the Christian tradition teaches that the point of politics is so that we might see mm-hmm. Jesus Christ's face more clearly. Like, that's why we're doing everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what the f- answer that Blessed Franz gives is long as well. You know, when people are saying, are you going to change anything? Are, like, what mm-hmm. is going to come about it? He responds, as long as we live in this world, I believe it is never too late to save ourselves and perhaps some other soul for Christ. Yes. Um, he, he, that, that, that is his fundamental answer. Uh, he has some other statements he makes along the way in various places about, um, you know, am I supposed to fight for the people who have conquered Austria mm. you know, as an Austrian? So it's not as though the, the like patriotism angle was, was wholly absent in him, but there are also, uh, other angles um like he mentions well let's say i go and fight these other people they're defending their homes is that right is it right for them to defend their homes yes so then it must be wrong for me to be attacking their homes (laughs) and should i give my life to take other people's homes away from them? Mm-hmm. Should I give my life to advancing the Nazi project? He has this, this fabulous piece of writing where he's thinking it through, and he says that people today want peace. They pray for peace. They want Christianity to return, but they want it to return after having done everything they can to ensure that the people who hate the church and wish to destroy the church will win their own victory. And then after we've worked to ensure their victory, we want to have a victory for Christianity without ever having worked for it. <laughs> having spent the whole time working for the opposite thing. I mean, it's so sad because we totally do that today. It's just like, let's just go along. Mm-hmm. Let's go along with these lockdowns. Let's go along with... Should I not have said that? We just, just go along with this huge regime. I don't like how the market is working right now. I mean, it, it is so biased. People are getting uh, preferential treatment within it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, let's just let's just carry on. And like one day, like things will get better. It's like, how will things ever get better? Mm-hmm. And he, he's, he's, he again, kind of strikes us to the heart at a different point when he says, um, after h- how long, once we just go along with the pure is doing, are we then not responsible for doing it. Mm-hmm. At what point will we just say we're just going to be compliant long enough that we ultimately are the ones that are achieving this the social order that yes. has come about? So, so he he, in in a sort of essential way, says, 
well, I have to save my own soul. Yeah. I'm not permitted to do what is evil. Mm-hmm. And and maybe I can help save some other people through through that example. But he also is concerned with the effect, mostly in a sort of negative sense, that I, I can't work for that effect. I can't work mm. for the building up of the Nazi right. empire. I have to work for the building up of the kingdom of God. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom uh, come. I, I can't remember the Our Father in the middle of this podcast. It's terrible. <laughs> Being on a camera so they forget everything you, everything you know. Uh, <laughs> thy thy kingdom lights. come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm reciting it backwards. Uh, <laughs> and he asked that's what he wants to work for. And he understands that he can't work for the opposite of that and work for that at the same time. Mm-hmm. So maybe he can't do much to build up the kingdom of God to ensure that his will is done. Yeah. Maybe all he can do is refuse to help the opposite thing. But then that is that is his contribution to to building it up. Yeah. Um, he is not just individualistic thinking that I need to to take care of myself here. Uh, he, he is concerned about the, the broader society he's bringing into being through his actions. Yeah. And the Nazis were too, in fact. You know, that that's why, as I said, this was faced with the death penalty, because they understood that refusing for religious reasons was inherently persuasive to people. Yeah. And they were trying to remove the efficacy of his action and uh, by inflicting the death penalty yeah by making it clear to people that oh it's over you're done yep. you didn't you didn't accomplish anything um and it seems like in most cases they succeeded not not the personal cases but i mean in it having an influence other people looked at it and well oh, that, that's a bridge too far you got to got to preserve your life mm. yeah and indeed it's fine for them to operate all through I mean, if the if those at the top are are, are self interested, they're wanting yes. to control. They're it, it's fine for them, and it actually works better for them if their subjects have that same interest, not not Hitler's interest, yeah. but their own in mind, because he can then manipulate that. Yes. I mean, you you have a whole whole city of tyrants, as Andrew Jones likes to say. Well, that, this actually yeah. is another reason why he doesn't find that argument convincing. Um, there's maybe this it will come up uh, in some of the other questions you wanted to ask, but the the theory at the time that was at least pushed forward, whether anybody actually believed it is another question, I suppose. But that uh, the authority, the one who tells you to do things, is morally responsible for them. If you just obey, you're not responsible. Oh yeah. So let me let me phrase this again because that that is really great. So so the, the first effect uh, objection is, uh, hey Franz, don't believe it. Just go along with it. Preserve your life. And the second objection is, really, you really think that this is going to be efficacious at all? Then the third is, hey, you need to obey the authority. And there's a number of different types of arguments that can mm-hmm. categorize under that third one. It's like, you need to obey the authority. Obviously, the most mm-hmm. you know, common one is like Paul, St. Paul tells us to do that. Mm-hmm. St. Peter tells us to do that. Jesus Christ tells us to do that. Mm-hmm. And kind of from there, it gets perverted at the time, as you're just mm-hmm. saying, is, and if you just follow them, it's yes. They're 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 going to be the one culpable, but you're not. Yes. So I mean, Franz's response to the basic thing: Well, Saint Paul says to obey the authorities. Is yes, but not when they're telling you to do something evil, mm-hmm. because you have to obey God rather than men. So the question is: Are they asking us to do something evil? 
Mm-hmm. Um, other people, <coughs> forgive me, I have a bit of a cold. Um, other people were making the argument that, well, if the authority tells you to do it, then it's not really wrong. Now, they might hold that, oh, it's contrary to the moral law, but what they mean is that it's not wrong for you to do it because you're just obeying and obedience is always good. <laughs> so, like, Hitler would be morally responsible for telling you to do it, but you would not be morally responsible for doing it. Mm-hmm. It would all, all the responsibility is his. And um, Jaegerstater is so, so opposed to this argument, and he, he's opposed to it in such simple ways. Such, I mean, he asks at one point, what is the purpose of us being able to know what is right and what is wrong? If we are just supposed to do whatever we are told to do. Yeah. Um, he says repeatedly, he, he appeals to the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and confirmation. Says, why are we given the gifts of wisdom and understanding yeah. if we're just supposed to do whatever we're told to do? Yep. Um, he, he's, not a, he's not a theologian. He's not very educated at all. But he's just looking at the, the, the simple, simple things and saying, well, this, this theory can't, can't be reconciled with the things that every Christian knows. Um, he says, you know, is it really plausible that thousands of people are doing this and only one, or maybe two men are actually responsible for yeah. all of these actions? Yeah. Like, we want to point that out. Like, you know, we even still today, we, we blame Hitler, obviously, rightly, but just Hitler alone. Like, for some reason, we have this understanding that it is just a leader who is the sole the sole mm-hmm. victimizer, realizing yeah. that. And in, in some sense, in, in some sense, yes, of course, the people in authority have more responsibility, and they're of course that's why they're the leaders, right? <laughs> um, and you know, Solzhenitsyn got in trouble for this. He's he's not well liked in Russia today. I, I, I don't know if we need to get into a whole side note on Solzhenitsyn, but this whole thing about the line between good and evil running through the human heart. Yeah, and Russians he tends to be disliked because of the feeling people have that he was condemning all of them for mm-hmm. what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, we were just trying to live. We were just trying to get along. We couldn't really have resisted. We couldn't really have accomplished anything. What does he want from us? Right, and the. There's a bit of a misunderstanding, I think, going on there because it seems like the attitude is that he was just talking about Russians. He was talking about everybody all over the earth in all the things they do. So, you know, I think there's a sense that he was trying to to radicalize a sense of Russian guilt um, and I suppose the various other peoples who were under the Soviet Union. Um, But he wasn't trying to do that. He's trying to talk about what is humanity. It's the same thing that Jaegerstater's trying to say that it's it's i don't get to be innocent simply because i'm living under pressure yeah i I have to work to remain innocent um and it might be hard it's and he he is a very he's a very forgiving and even excusing attitude toward other people i mean he can say these things in his writings about how this is obviously wrong Mm -hmm. to do these things and he's under no he has no confusion at all about whether or not it's wrong. And yet he'll turn around and say, well, we can't judge other people. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know how weak they may be. Or, I mean, even in, in regard to the, the bishop, the second bishop, who um, was not as strong as Bishop Gefulner, he, he was very weak on the whole Nazi question. Mm-hmm. Um Jäger Schroeder says, well, 
they, they carry a heavy burden, and we shouldn't make it heavier by excoriating them for their failures. We should help them to change by, by encouragement and basically by cutting them as much slack as we can because we don't know. Yeah. And so they may know, right? They may mm-hmm. know that this thing has been a great pressure to them. And if we act like it hasn't, then they'll be able to justify themselves. Totally, yeah. And we don't want them to be able to justify themselves. We want them to be able to convert and change. R- right. And uh, this, is, this is one of these, I, I think, important Christian teachings where you have um, the command to, well, really the, the teaching that Christ is the sole judge, right? We're not judging. But then also in, from St. Paul, that we are t- called to judge our neighbor as well, in the hope that we might help one another. You yes. judge me, I judge you, so that we can help mm-hmm. one another ascend to God. But in that delicate thing of saying mm-hmm. objectively what you're doing might be wrong, or objectively yeah. what I'm doing is wrong, but ultimate judgment is the Lord's. And I think he, as you're saying, he exemplifies that that very dynamic distinction yeah. I mean, this, so beautifully. This, to me, actually, is one of the most... Uh, striking and challenging things about Franz Jägerstädter that, I mean, all, all the opposition of the Nazis, it's really easy for us to look at that now with the benefit of hindsight. Like he didn't even know about the Holocaust, apparently. He has one reference to like two years of murdering people in the most brutal ways, but it, it's unclear whether he's just talking about war crimes or mm. he had heard about the killing of disabled people. Um, and people in mental institutions. He had heard about that, but it's unclear whether he even knew about the Holocaust because most people didn't. Um, but today with hindsight, it's really easy for us to say, Nazis were terrible. Of course, we'd re- refuse right. to, to collaborate. The thing which is hard to say is we would have refrained from judging our neighbors, that we would have been able to to live in peace with people. I mean, trying to help them change, but without creating the sense that we were their enemies. And somehow he does that. And I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, I, I have to admit that the part of me, and maybe it's the part of me that is not a saint and that there's a lot of that part, um, <laughs> thinks that he might've been wrong about that, that he may have been cutting them too much slack. I, mm. I, I don't know if that's me justifying myself. Um, I, I was saying something, however, <laughs> before I went on that tangent well, uh, about I, responsibility. Um, well, I, I want to actually t- take this and apply it to the greatest part of his responsibility, yes. or so-called responsibility, and that's his family. He said that this, this seems to be even though the authority argument, mm-hmm. you must obey your obey the authorities, was mm-hmm. the largest cultural argument yes. that was being taught at the time. The thing that seems clearly to strike him most deeply in his letters and his writings mm-hmm. is the argument, mm-hmm. you have a responsibility for your family. Um, well, yes, very briefly. Yeah, I, I remember the thing. Okay. In, in relation to judging people. Mm-hmm. And in relation to what are you going to accomplish, mm-hmm. and in relation to authority, there's one thing that comes out, which is I, I find really odd. He says, okay, maybe the person higher up is more responsible than us, but why are we all trying to push our responsibility on him instead right. of trying to lighten his responsibility? Mm. And so he does say that one of the things that he will accomplish 
is lessening the responsibility of the people in authority because at least someone disobeyed them. <laughs> and so he's, wow. he's concerned yeah. for the guilt that they have too. Mm. Um, and that, that's one of his, his things that he considers as, as a political, social, and you know, religious effect of his action, that the people in authority who are asking him to do evil will be less guilty because at least he said no and did not add to their responsibility. Um, this is this is connected to the, the thing about his family. So what what were people saying about his family? To, to be clear and make this yeah, let's let's just point out. Let, yeah, let's let's take this on a, a number of. Let's just read what what he said. Okay. Um, well, what were they saying to him? Their, their argument. Oh, sorry. That's that's what I meant to say. Um, shouldn't we? Oh, sorry. No, that's not the right part. They're saying to him. You have a wife. Mm -hmm. You have children. You have daughters. You need to take care of of them. That particularly, um, what's going to happen to them afterwards? Like you're not there to work on the farm. You're not there to provide for them. The whole village is looking down upon them because you are making everyone else look bad, and you are jeopardizing the safety even of. Of yes. them, not only your family, because yes. the Nazis are going to have their sights on them. I mean, actually, where is this? The bishop at one point. Oh, the when, bishop, the bishops, that's on 164. Yeah, this is this is worthwhile. This is this is the, can, can oh. I say the questionable bishop? Um, the bishop who's not as great. I can't remember his name, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, so this... Now, for those, for those of you listening, this is just shockingly evil this this is i think the only point in reading any of the books i read on the other where my jaw actually dropped and i just stared at the page so, for like a minute i didn't know what to do so this is coming out of the diocesan office of of Linz. yes in 1946, this is after the war, Yep. Um, the diocesan newspaper, a priest had submitted a piece to the diocesan newspaper about Franz, and uh, it was titled... Uh, Heroic consistency. I think so, it's probably sounded better in German. It, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you might say integrity or something like that. Yeah, well, that's how it gets translated. Yeah. And consistency is, is important to the argument that this priest at least thought that Jägerstädter was a model of sanctity. Yeah, and so we submitted a piece to the Diocesan newspaper in 1946 after the war, arguing this, and the bishop skewered it, saying, "Nope, we can't publish this," and wrote a letter to the the person writing the newspaper explaining why. I have known Jaegerstater personally, he writes, since he spent more than an hour with me before he was to be inducted. To no avail, I set before him all the moral principles defining the degree of responsibility carried by citizens and private individuals for the actions of the civil authority. That's the theory we were just talking about. Yep. And reminded him of his far greater responsibilities in his own state of life, in particular, for his family. And then he goes on, he well, says... I mean, you'll notice the, the shape of that argument. The shape of the argument is, um, you have a family. That's what you got to take care of. These people, uh, I mean, they're making bad decisions. You're not as responsible if you follow them. So what you need to do is you need to go along with whatever they say to protect the family. This is moral advice from the bishop. Mm -hmm. Do everything they want because you've got a family. That's that's actually your vocational responsibility. You're... Your heroism in your state and life would be that. So 
Yeah, and so then he goes on and he says, I am aware of the consistency of his conclusions and respect them, especially in he their puts it intention. in scare quotes. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> let me see this. There's, there's, it, it gets worse, actually. There's, there's, there's more than just that one little Trying to bit. save him responsibility. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, at the time, I could see that the man thirsted after martyrdom and for the expiation of sin. Uh, and I told him that he was permitted to choose that path only if he knew that he had been called to it through some special revelation originating from above and, and not in himself. He agreed with this. No, this this is not true. <laughs> this this The bishop, I don't know if his memory is bad or what, but this is not, in fact, how that conversation went because that's not what Yegashir thought. And the beheading thing kind of seemed to suggest that he disagreed with it. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, the, the Jägerstater was not saying, oh, I, I just oh, really special, want to be yeah. martyred. I have the yeah. special call to be martyred. No, no, oh, no. Yeah, for, him it was, for him, it was just, this is wrong and I can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, for this reason, the bishop says, Jägerstater represents a completely exceptional case. One more to be marveled at than copied. And it is presented to people only in a suitable and unambiguous manner. That is saying, no, no, you shouldn't do what he did. That was a special like, call from God to do something wild and crazy. And he, he makes this very clear. The bishop continues here. I consider the greater heroes to be those exemplary young Catholic men, seminarians, priests, and heads of families who fought and died in heroic fulfillment of duty. And in the firm conviction that they were fulfilling the will of God at their post, just as the Christian soldiers in the heathen armies, uh, in the armies of the heathen emperor had done. Then he says, "Or are the greater heroes, the the Bible students, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Adventists, who in their scare quote consistency, preferred to die in concentration camps rather than bear arms?" All respect is due the innocently erroneous conscience. It will have its reward from God. For the instruction of men, and he emphasizes the word men, as though Jägerschitter wasn't really manly. For the instruction of men, the better models are to be found in the example set by the heroes who conducted themselves consistently in the light of a clear and correct conscience. <laughs> yeah, fighting for Hitler. He's literally Clearing, defending that after the war. Af yes. And saying, well, if he's a saint, it's because of some special call from God to do something crazy. But this is why it's so, this is so important for us. Is that yes. like, you can see the logic of what he's saying, and it is captivating mm -hmm. to be able to go back ten, out 10,000 feet and say, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 but he's endorsing Hitler. That's right. a good catch for us. Because yes. I think most of us really follow him right there. It's I like, mean, especially at the beginning where he's saying, well, you know, those people are in authority. They're just making their decisions. And you know, you, if you don't follow th the, the decisions they've made, you'll be punished and all this. And your family will suffer and you've got to protect your family. That's your main responsibility. I mean, I've heard that argument in my own life. Yeah. You've heard that argument. I, I think everyone's heard that argument made. Yeah. But when you carry it to the conclusion that now we should just serve in Hitler's army, and that's the real Christian heroism. That's fulfilling the will of God to protect my family. Yeah. Um, it, it begins to look wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the fact, on the face yeah. of it, the, 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 very, the very first step where he puts the responsibility of the family above doing what is good and yeah. pushes the responsibility off on the other people, uh, it's, it's a really diabolical 
maneuver and coming from the bishop after the war, I'd, I, I don't know how to understand that. So, President Franz has a direct answer to his objection. Yes. Other than, um, I do not believe that Christ said that we must obey a state when it commands us to do bad things. That's clearly just very straightforward. <laughs> yes. You know? But he, he has an objection to... And he also says, I, I do not, in one of his last writings, I, I do not see that it is permissible for a man to offend God simply because he has a wife and children. I'm going to about to read that. Oh. Yeah. So he's here. We, so here's the first general argument. He says, shouldn't we risk everything? I think, this, sorry, I just want to set this up one, one more time, that um, this is such a turn. It's an absolute mm-hmm. turn. Be ready to, to have your mind blown. I am. <laughs> Sh- shouldn't we risk everything in defense of our children's souls? Shouldn't we year after year, or should we year after year remain silent and look on defenselessly? I believe that if we continue on this path, we shall one day experience bitter regret and perhaps also eternal sorrow. He's still talking about raising children. Are our obligations to lead our children to God somehow today lifted from us just because these obligations are harder to fulfill than they were in earlier decades. I believe not. He says at a different essay, is the action that someone does somehow morally better because this person is married and has children? Or is the action better or worse because thousands of other Catholics are doing it? Is someone permitted to lie in taking an oath just because he has a wife and children? Did not Christ himself say that whoever loves wife, mother, and children more than me is not worthy of me? On what basis do we ask God for the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit if we should adhere to blind obedience in any case? This this is outstanding stuff. And and those those are two different arguments. They they are, yeah. but I want to fit them together. No, they uh, they go together certainly. Yeah, it, um, and I want to fit it together with with this one last quote: "Those people who are ready to die rather than to offend God through a little freely chosen sin gain greater merit for themselves than those people who withdraw from the Catholic Church when it is demanded of them." Now, he's He's obviously mm. taking from the biblical principles that that Christ must be our true love, but he's he's not leaving that as saying we must actively. <laughs> it's so funny because it sounds contradictory to scripture that we're we're to hate our children. What he's saying is that when we are to lose our guardianship of our family, when as he's about to die, no longer able to protect his kids here on earth, no longer to protect his wife here on earth. He's saying, this is actually the best thing that I can possibly do for them mm-hmm. because my main job for my children is to make them saints. Yes. And the only, in the best way that I can prove to them that becoming a saint is possible is for me to become one. Mm-hmm. I will not jeopardize that image for my children by denying the faith. And he says something, and I, I, I hate to admit this, but he, he oftentimes says that his, the main sin that he's debating is whether or not to break the, the fourth commandment. You know, he's wondering whether or not... Surely I'm not the only one who can't remember which the fourth sorry. commandment is. Well, and there's also different um, uh, orderings yeah. of number. Growing up, yeah. Protestant will do that too, because I, I, don't, I don't... Yeah, that's true. He's referring to lying here. Lying, okay. You know, and, and uh, 
it, you know, I, I have to admit, like, I, I was like, yeah, who cares? But it's like, no, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That's a big deal. And that's what he does. He says, actually, this is, this is the biggest deal. And if I cannot provide yes. my children with a model for sanctity, then I have failed as a husband. Yes, because he, I mean, he has two concerns. One of them is, of course, serving in the army and actually you know, doing bad things yeah. in the army, like killing people and taking people's property, destroying things, all this. But there's also just the taking of the oath, because in, in the Nazi army, they replaced the previous Austrian military oath, which was to the Republic of Austria or whatever it was. Um, I don't know if it was a republic, but to Austria with a oath personally to Hitler, fidelity to Hitler. Mm-hmm. And he refused to take that oath uh, even with like a mental reservation, oh, I don't really mean it. Because he says, well, then I'm not allowed to take it. If I can't mean it, I shouldn't say it. Mm-hmm. it it's that simple. And um, interestingly enough, I found in, in the last book I read, the, the other books don't contain it because it wasn't known yet. It came out only in the military records when the tribunal records are unsealed in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. That he had taken the oath in 1940 um, when he was called up for military training. He took the oath then. And apparently between then and 1943, when he was called up again, he decided that that was the wrong thing to have done. But he never told anyone he did it. Wow. Um, and I, I don't I don't know how that worked if it was like that the oath was uh, negated by being sent back to the – back home. Because he was, he was being asked to take it a second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he refused. Uh it seems to me, and we may return to this, that a lot of Fiegerstetter's spiritual growth was connected with having done things that were wrong. And I'm looking at it going, yeah, I can't do that again. <laughs> well, isn't that what the, like all of our lives of repentance like, should be? It's like, oh yeah, I did that. I shouldn't have. And I'm not going to anymore. I'm going to turn. Mm-hmm. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change, you know, by God's grace. Right? Yes. But these are the four arguments that he, he really dealt with. Argument of... Just do it anyway. You know, just just be quiet and save yourself. Think something else in your heart. Yeah, think something else in your heart. (laughs) Uh, Do you really think that this is going to change anything? Second argument. Um, You have to obey legitimate authority. And third, what about your family? Or fourth, what about your family? I mean, these are big arguments that I think most of us would fall for. I would fall for these, you know, by the help of Blessed Franz and... In the teachings of the church, I might have a shot. I don't know. I mean, you know, but this is, they're just so tempting and it's hard. And he says that he, like in prison, he felt tempted to to betray his decision, your decision for Christ. Right? Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's in, in relation to that, it's perhaps important to talk about the, the cultural compromise that was going on around him, not just in relation to the Nazis, because that that's the big glaring one that mm. we can all see. Um, but even before that, we think of Austria, rural Austria, all the farmers living on the land, you know, being in touch with nature. These are surely these are yeah. highly moral people in connect in in uh, contact with the deep roots of Christianity and the nature of things. And uh Right, and we say that today. Like we, yep. we want to do go back to this back, back to, to the, the farm, land. back to the yeah. lamb movement. Nothing, you know? nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just that you can't make promises for it it can't keep. Right. And uh, even before 
the Nazis in all of this, and even yeah. though they opposed the Nazis, there was this vein of compromise built into the even the Catholic culture of the area. And yeah. I, I find it really interesting. I made a made a list of some of the the elements of it. Um, the well, the first one, which was most striking in, in uh, Gordon Zahn, was the American sociologist. In his book, he gives some anecdotes about cultural practices, and one I'd I'd never heard of. You remember there's the thing with the ladders? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, apparently it was a normal courting practice for young men to just go take a step ladder and lay it up against uh, the woman's second floor, I guess first floor because they're in Europe, so they yeah, yeah. run differently. But uh, up to her window and just climb the ladder and you know talk to her there at the window, and that was that was courting, and that just sounds like not a great idea. Um, but then apparently she was like really liking the conversation. She'd ask him to come inside and that was, that was normal. And it was like a sign of approval. And um, that sounds like really a bad idea. Um, and, you know, sometimes that would lead to what you would expect. Um, and uh, then, you know, someone might come take the ladder away in the middle of the night. Or sometimes, you know, if, if people just wanted to get back at a girl who'd done something I to them. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so let's say, let's say you're interested in a girl and she turns you down. And for some reason, you're just really upset about this. And she's rubbing it in some your face. Reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's rubbing it in your face, you know. <laughs> so you want to get back at her. What do you do? You just go and you set a stepladder next to her window at night. And so everyone finds it in the morning and assumes <laughs> there's been a guy in there all night. And this is just, this is just how the, the people did it. These are all Catholics, and they're like, you know, it's just some folk practices. And they, like, laugh at it. They yeah. think it's funny. Just I mean, they look down on the woman, but they, when they're telling these stories to Zahn, like, they're all, like, reminis they're, like yeah. giggling about it. Just some healthy folk practices, yeah. you know. Children will be children. Ha-ha. We were all young once. It's like, this is, this, this is the Catholic society. Um, and the... Another another one I found interesting was a comment on the pastor, because Father Karabov there in the village of St. Radegund um, was strongly anti-Nazi, and he was convinced that Jägerschitter was a saint. Yeah, right uh, away. Right away. Um, now, he, he was not the pastor when all this went down, because in 1940 he had an anti-Nazi sermon and he was um, put in prison briefly and then moved elsewhere. <coughs> Again, forgive me. Um so there was another pastor there, Father Fertauer. I'm going to offend all the, the German-speaking people again. Um, They're coming after you, man. And he was <laughs> – uh, he was – Father Fertauer was much younger and not really prepared for the situation. And he exhorted Franz to, to compromise, as, as did Karaboth early on. Um, but Karaboth strongly pushed the idea that he was a saint after the war and he, he'd apparently get a little tipsy sometimes you know at the, the pub and just tell people that Jägerstater was the only one of my parishioners who'd really fulfilled his christian responsibilities <laughs> that he's he's a martyr and a saint and compared with him you should all be ashamed and he's he's a great example and the people just shrugged this off well they kind of were prickly against Franz in his memory. Um, or what do you mean by shrugged it off? They, they shrugged off the pastors. Like you, you would uh, normally yeah. think, oh, it's a Catholic community. Here's the pastor. He's been here for a long time. We know that he personally suffered. You know, he went to prison. And uh, here he is telling us this man is a saint. And they just, they just thought this was uh, whatever. They, did, they didn't seem to be bothered by this. And the the reason that Zahn gives for this, if we can trust a, a sociological the finding here mm -hmm. um 
it says it appears to be related to the role of the pastor in a village like St. Radegund, the, the culturally accepted role of the pastor. The peasant community, he says, expects a priest to restrict himself to purely theological affairs and not to meddle in more worldly matters in his sermons or other parish activities. Um, so all, although Jägerscher's rejection of military service was to him and to the pastor, essentially theological, the community is more inclined to place it in a political context you know, it's about doing your duty and taking care of your family and all that, which they were certain of, so that for a pastor to maintain otherwise and that they should do something else they want to be real Christians is meddling. Yeah. So th apparently the, the Christian culture here, that it was not the job of the pastor to tell you how to be a Christian. We all already know that. We already know how to be a Christian. And uh, if you try to tell us otherwise, we'll just kind of kind of brush it off. Even more weirdly, some of the people, he says, uh, he's in, in the, this is 63, 64, he's doing the research, I think. Um, 1963, 1964. Yes. To sum it up succinctly, the community at that time continues to reject Jägerstater's stand as a stubborn and pointless display of essentially political imprudence, or even as an actual failure to fulfill a legitimate duty to the, the family, most likely, maybe maybe even to the state. It is to be explained and forgiven in terms of an unfortunate mental aberration. They all kind of thought he was, you know, he was a little touched in the head. The religion just went too far. It overbalanced him. It's a shame because they all loved him, but they, they didn't love the saint Jägerstater. They loved the early rowdy Jägerstater. All they remember, like, man, it's a shame he became so religious, had to go off and die. We liked that guy when he was fun. Like this, this appears to have been the attitude. So the question of whether he was morally right is for the most part set aside. While some of the villagers were quite willing to accept the possibility that he might someday be formally acknowledged as a saint, this possibility was not considered at all incompatible with the community's general disapproval of his action. And that, that's just a shocking, shocking inconsistency to me, the, 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 the culture, the Catholic culture there can look at it and go, yeah, 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 maybe he's a saint, but he was still wrong. Yeah, but I think that's where we are generally as a church. You know, I mean, Blessed Franz brings this up at a, at a certain point where he says, and we all put praise the early martyrs, mm -hmm. and yet none of us would do what they, they did. Like, we can't call them heroes and mm -hmm. reject their example at the same time. That's yes. that's how he phrases yes. it. The way I would phrase it is, if we actually met a saint, we, wouldn't, we really wouldn't like him all that much. Like, really, I mean, if you think about it, like, this guy is, mm -hmm. like, in his actions, demonstrating to us that we're wrong. Mm -hmm. He's also demonstrating that this crazy divide between theology and politics, mm -hmm. between economics and, and, and God, mm -hmm. is, is just I impossible. That it's not right. That everything mm -hmm. we believe really informs how we act. And everything that we worship really does begin to change the way that we live mm -hmm. life. And he's he's you know cutting right through their their baloney, as it were. And and he's doing it in a very winsome way. I mean, like I said, yeah. he's not he's not confrontational about no. it. He's not going out there and condemning people. No way. He's yeah. very quiet about it. Um, he was known to respond to people making the Nazi salute and saying Heil Hitler by saying Fui Hitler. 
<laughs> so he he had a bit of an edge sometimes, but he uh, he 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 was also known. He stopped gambling to be fiscally responsible um, after he got more religiously serious, and I imagine that's that's how he ended up with some of the money he was giving to to poorer people and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also known to stop drinking, uh, and this it turns out was not because of some religious problem or because of some incipient alcoholism or whatever, but because he discovered that if he went to the pub, he would end up arguing with people about Nazi stuff. Yeah. And he didn't want to do that. So he just stopped going to the pub. And of course that made him look like less of a fun guy. But um, you know, he was he was he was winsome about it. He wasn't trying to rile people up. Right. But just the the fact that he didn't he wouldn't sin. He wouldn't compromise. And his wife supported him pretty strongly, but she didn't. She didn't quite understand it either. Mm-hmm. Um, in, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want to get out of order here, but uh, I, I feel like I should respond to something because I've heard that this is people who see a hidden life, the movie about him. I, I've heard walk away with his objection somewhat frequently. Why didn't he just pull up? sound of music and go over the mountains with his family. And, you know, uh, yeah. why, why did he report for military service? Yeah, that's a great Because he reported yeah. for military service and that's why he got thrown in prison mm-hmm. and then executed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just the refusals, the fact that they had custody of him. Um, or why didn't he hide in the woods outside the village? Um, and this is not really touched on in his reflections, which I find odd because you'd think that would that would play a big part in it. But it seems to me that it doesn't play a big part in his reflections because he doesn't feel like he had any other choice. He does, I suppose he didn't look on any other options actually realistic. Um, one friend of his, I think it's Rudolf Meyer, uh, says that he did consider hiding in the woods. He talked about it, but rejected it because it, he thought would open his family to reprisals. Mm-hmm. Because they, of course, would have to be feeding him and going out there. And so like, the Nazis would know that he hadn't shown up for military service, and he's probably in the woods, and his family's... And so then they would run into an immediate direct confrontation with the Nazis. Yeah. And so he'd be safe, but they wouldn't. Um, And he did know that if he got executed, the Nazis might take the farm away from his family and all, but they still wouldn't be like guilty of anything. They wouldn't be being hounded personally. They'd they'd have a hardship, but it wouldn't be like they had themselves participated in his act. Um, And as far as going over the border, he doesn't even mention it. That's not, I suppose, because their border was... Germany. They, you know, yeah. <laughs> you want to go closer in? <laughs> that, 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 that's not going to help. Yeah. Um, now, actually, the, the people in The Sound of Music were right on the other side because he's, he's actually very close to Hitler's birthplace. And so, so were they. Like the movie the Sound of Music is not accurate. If, the, if you go over the border in Austria there, is my understanding, uh, you actually end up basically in Hitler's birthplace, which is not, not going to help you out in your attempt to escape. Any. Um, but the, he, he wasn't rich. He's a peasant. He's a peasant farmer. Yeah. If you pick up your family, leave the ancestral land. Which, That's the extent of your wealth, right? Which, there. which is from his stepfather. That's mm-hmm. the extent of your wealth. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, and he also had a low opinion of the United States. Um, he, he mentions that. That yeah. You know, oh, so we lose this war. What happens? Maybe the maybe the Bolsheviks over in Russia take over. Maybe the maybe the Americans run us, but they're not good people either. It might be better for us in some ways than the Nazis, but it's not going to be a, a Christian society. They're not going to like what we're doing. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that is amazing. Actually, it's something to stop on one second. So he, there's a couple of kind of crazy things that the church has done. <laughs> uh, 
one of them was that in for World War One, they beatified Blessed Karl of Austria, who was our opponent. <laughs> and then the second thing is that they beatify Franz Jägerseder, who is fearful of an American victory of the war. He's not against it. He's what he says is is that um, perhaps they would be more civilized and it, and at least for a while not as brutal under the Russians, but. Uh, but we know how it would be for Christian belief under under their governments. He says it's still it's still an attack, yes. still an affront. And we still have this division yes. between church and state. This we still have the division that all of his villagers were yes. mentioning that the priest, that the theological, mm-hmm. should not be meddling in the political. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, and that's something he has a he has a profound problem with. He sees it as as all one thing. You have one life. All of your actions come out of you. Yeah, they all have to be Christ's. That's yeah. that's all you have. Um, his so I, I think his reporting for military service and refusing was a way for him of protecting his family to the greatest extent he could. Yeah, and if they were going to suffer, he wanted it to be from their independent acts. Like he was going to have a conscience, but he wasn't going to force them to answer for it. Mm-hmm. They were going to have to answer for their own. Yeah. Um, and he wanted his to be an example to them, but he didn't want to to precipitate needless suffering in an attempt to protect himself. Yeah. When he says one place, what, do we think we're going to live forever? Don't we all know we have to die sometime? Mm-hmm. What What do we want a few more years for? Which is not not how I think about it. <laughs> um, it's it's really he could have gone to Rome again. Um, I want to I want to talk about his his um. How in the middle of this this just generally compromised uh, culture with this split, he seems to end up being different. It's always mysterious. It's, it's the grace of God, right? And you never quite see it uh, under a microscope. Yeah, yeah. Let's, but yeah, it seems to me one of the great one of the great benefits of the, of modernity uh, is that we have serious, detailed records of the lives of saints. And so we can mm. we can examine what sanctity actually looks like in action in a way we couldn't before. You know, we've got the golden legend and everything, right? With these like all these crazy miracles, most of which are probably parables more than historical stories, um, and they're inspiring and all. But you can't you can't bank on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jaegerstad, there's, there's a weird there's a weird story in uh, the sociologist. One boy who was eight or nine in the village when Jägerstädter died, recounts to him stories about, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard Jägerstädter would refuse to mow the fields with a scythe because he didn't want to kill God's flowers. <laughs> and uh, he prayed to the flowers, yeah. Like, and Jean says, no, that, that, that's not what happened. That doesn't match other depictions. So I wonder sometimes about these, these old stories of saints. Uh, like, yeah. He prayed to the flowers. <laughs> like, uh, no, actually, we have his letters. Pretty sure he didn't. Um, <laughs> But the not not just the, you get out of the legends, but you get into this like what is it in this really embodied concrete detail? What does it look like? Uh, and even then, there's always the mysterious dimension because it's all interior, and you can never quite bring it out. Um, but it seems to me, you know, he mentions a lot when like the bishop he he went to talk as we mentioned to that second bishop, and the bishop said, "Yeah, I just go along." Jägerstädter walked out, and his wife was waiting. And he said to her, the bishop has not experienced the grace I have been given. 
And that was his summation. He wasn't blaming the man. He's just like, well, we've, we've received different graces. He doesn't, he hasn't been given the clarity I've been given. And isn't that a shame? But uh, so what, what was the grace he'd been given? I, I saw one writer who said this might have been the illegitimate child, mm. um, pulling him up short, you know, the, the sense that his actions have consequences mm. uh, for other people. And that, that may have been why he took care of her the way he did. He also offered to adopt her when he got married, but the, the family turned them down. Um, this, what's, let's see, that was... He got married at 36. She was about three years old at that point. Um, they, they turned him down in that offer. But not just, not just the sense of guilt that, oh, I've done something that affects other people. Um, I, I think it may also have been the child. The sense that there, there's a child here and a sense of responsibility came to exist in him. Um, and uh, uh, there's, there's some other things in his life one can mention. Though that as I say, that was 1933 with the, the child. And then 1934, he seems to have gotten more serious. Uh, and then he seems to get even more serious around the time he marries. But that seems to have been the first turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he wrote a letter to his, his illegitimate daughter right before he died, which doesn't survive, unfortunately. But in, in one of the books I read, which is uh, by, by Erna Putz, I can't remember the name of it, um, she quotes a few excerpts that the, the girl remembers, and they very much match the other letters. Like, mm. listen to your mother, mm. be sure to be good, obey the commandments, I will see you in heaven. You know, the, these sorts of things. What, what a 10-year-old, she was a 10 years old when he died, uh, what a 10-year-old would remember, um, I suppose. Um, but another one would be the dream of the train. There was a, he had an experience in 1938. I should read this if I can remember where it is. Uh, I think 173. One, that's right, 173. Um, he had it in January of 1938. Now, this is very interesting because what happened in March of 1938? The Anschluss. So this is two months before the Nazis invade Austria and four months before the vote is held to, to ratify their invasion. Mm-hmm. He says this, um, on January night, 1938, I initially lay awake in bed until midnight, even though I was not sick. Then I must have fallen asleep for at least a little while, for I saw a wonderful train as it came around a mountain, with little regard for the adults. Children flowed to this train and were not held back. You see again the the disconnection between adults and children here. Children flowed to the train and were not held back. They were present by their parents. Yes. Ostensibly. You know? Yes. Yeah. With little regard for the for the adults, the children yeah. flowed in were not held yeah. back. There were present a few adults who did not go into the area. I do not want to give their names nor to describe them. Then a voice said to me, "This train is going to hell." Immediately it happened. Someone took me by the hand, and the same voice said to me, "Now we are going to purgatory." What I glimpsed and perceived was fearful. If this voice had not told me that we were going to purgatory, I would have judged that I had found myself in hell. Apparently, only a few seconds passed during which I glimpsed all of this. Then I heard a rushing sound and saw a light, and everything went away. I immediately awoke my wife and recounted to her everything that had transpired. So he has this 
dream, which, which marked him deeply. And, and the sociologist talking to people, people remember him mentioning this to them, that the pastor at least, and, and a few others. Um, it doesn't come up much in his letters, but you know, he, he was already at this point in his life helping the poor in his community and he'd, mm-hmm. he'd gotten married and he'd become more serious. And then he has this dream and he's living in an area where people are, are opposed to the Nazis. And he, he was already opposed to the Nazis at this point. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what the dream means. This is, this is a little odd to me. Um, he says two things. Before that night, I could never, of course, truly believe that the suffering in purgatory could be so great. Second thing. The train's significance was initially an enigma to me. However, the longer I've thought about the dream, the more clearly this moving train's meaning has dawned on me. It is now clear this image represents nothing other than national socialism, Nazism, with all of its distinct organizations, the, the NS National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NS Public Assistance Program, the NS Women's Association, the Hitler Youth, and so forth. In other words, the train represents the NS folk community and everything for which it sacrifices and struggles. So you have the 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 train at the front with all the different carriages. Yeah, <laughs> the Nazi Party and all yeah. their all their associations. Yeah. It's a, it's 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 almost charming in a weird little way. Um, <laughs> uh, and so he he says, I believe God has clearly spoken to me through this dream or appearance and placed it in my heart so that I could decide whether to be a national socialist or a Catholic. Um, yeah. So that, that, that does not seem to have been the root of his disapproval because he then, he connects it. He's, he has to figure out what it means. And so if he wasn't already disapproving of the Nazis and the cooperation was bad, uh, how, how would he have been able to see the connection? Yeah. You know, but he he. So that that's obviously one grace, which is rather extraordinary, and I, I don't know what to make of that because the rest of his, the rest of his spiritual life seems to have been very uh, ordinary, in in a lot of the outward and even inward ways as far as we have access to them. But then there's that. Yeah, there is. A, <coughs> I, you know, just kind of the, sum it up. I I think that there's a. <laughs> I almost need to say there's a lot going on interiorly. Like when when a priest comes to him uh, a couple of days before he's to be executed, yes, they, he asks him if he wants some religious pamphlet, and he smiles no, at him and he says no. Oh, it's the Bible. He's offering. Well, no. At first, it was a religious pamphlet, and then he says, "Well, would you like me to read you something from the Bible?" And he says that he looks up at him again with a smile and says, "I am in such inner union with God." that reading would only break off that inward communication. It's, it's one of my favorite stories about him. It's like you have to either yeah. be insane to say that. Or or lying. Or, or, or correct. I mean, it's, or it's, you're it's, the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's the trilemma again. <laughs> the, yeah, what he, what he said was, and this, this was recounted by the priest that same night. So the night, he was, he was executed at 4 p.m. Um, that same evening, the priest who was the chaplain present went to a, a convent to speak to some nuns, and he told them the story, and apparently they wrote it down, um, or, or it was stuck in their memory. They, they recounted it to Zahn, the sociologist. He said, I am completely bound in inner union with the Lord. Any reading would only interrupt my communication with God. 
Um, this is this is one of the things about the saints, which is which is hard to understand because of how often we we do kitschify them, as as the bishop said. Yeah. Um, we we make them just sentimental, and we would look at their words and we we just make cute you know, stickers and posters and whatever. And it, it's like, they're just like, they're just other words. It seems to me that it's very like the Bible, not, not a drawn equivalence. Obviously it's not, not inspired, but like St. Paul in first Corinthians says that the unspiritual man cannot understand spiritual things mm-hmm. because they're spiritually discerned. So it is, it is the spirit that searches the depths of God. And he says, we have the mind of Christ. We can understand it from the inside. And it's the fact that we don't have the same inside the saint does, <laughs> that their words tend to look yeah. to us like a lot of outside. Right. You know, like we, 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 we forget about the depth, the yep. depth of life and the, um, it's like lily pads, you know, they float. I'm maybe about to be wrong if you're, if you know about this don't don't tell me but uh <laughs> lily pads you know they float on the surface of, of a pond pads, and i am at they have like a they, they they have a root right that goes down to the to the the bottom and you can't see it you just see it floating on the surface and if you were to cut it it would still float and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference at least at first between the dead ones and the living ones i, I would imagine but one the, the the words the surface are connected to this depth and their meaning comes from there and egerschut is so simple and so uneducated that it's in a special danger with him that it just looks like oh here's a simple man this but there's this profound depth and you see it increasingly in the prison letters that every once in a while especially as it gets nearer to the end this profound sense seems to flicker behind the words if if you look for it Mm -hmm. he could be saying the same thing he meant before and it just seems to mean more now Mm -hmm. Um, but it came upon him gradually, you know, throughout his life. And it seems to increase even when he's in prison. Um, and it, it, it seems to me, uh, that it probably started with that illegitimate child and then the, the dream of the train, um, reinforced it. And I I think also his marriage, Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't, I can't find it right now, but it's when he's in prison. I think it's the, the first prison he was in. He writes to his wife. Uh, it apparently indicates a a temptation to cease believing in God. Yeah. Um, and he says, when I look back on my marriage and my family and all that has happened to me and how good it is, I realize that I cannot to doubt God. I cannot doubt God because I cannot understand my life anymore if I did that. Um. So this 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 grows on him throughout his life. And I think that the inner reality, the depth in him has a few different elements, which are, are worth sketching um, very briefly, that, that he has a profound sense of the reality of heaven. It comes up again and again. I mean, he, he quotes at least stories from saints, some of the golden legend kind of stuff about, yeah. about Augustine and Jerome and their experience of heaven. Um, uh, Jerome allegedly died and then appeared in a vision to Augustine who was writing a book on heaven and told him about how ridiculous it is you're trying to do this. And he talks about how we need to meditate on heaven and keep it before our eyes and that our goal in everything should be in everything we do, interpreting St. Paul on mm-hmm. um, pray without ceasing. He says yeah. that in every, everything we do should be coming from the desire to have eternal life um, and not separate ourselves from it. Uh, it. It seems that that's like the first thing for him 
is is this reality of heaven, and then also the strong sense of guilt that he has mm. for his own actions, and it, I think it's reinforced by the dream of the train and the sense of yeah. the suffering and purgatory. But he has it before that, the sense of of guilt incurred by our actions, and then the, the, the seriousness of that. And he has a profound sense of God's mercy and willingness to forgive. Um, and, and Christ is the one who reveals God as another, and reveals the way to heaven, opens mm-hmm. the way to heaven as another strong element in his um, inner world. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this constant drive to forgive people in the prison, apparently. Um, it appears to be related to prison guards. Um, they were rather mistreated by the prison guards, that's, that's putting it lightly. Um, he tries to live in this attitude of complete forgiveness. Even in prison, he's giving food away to other people. Um, from the recollections of the other people who are in prison with him, they say that later. Um, and he wants to forgive and wants to help the poor because he knows that's how you get to heaven and that you don't sin. And he brings it up again in Christ's willingness to suffer and Christ making his mother suffer. Mm-hmm. Um his family, you know, he's hurting his family by doing what he did, but he had to do it. Uh, he has a reflection on death where he talks about receiving communion. And it's really striking um, because I'll open straight to it. Um, Therefore, we should prepare ourselves when we are approaching the table of the Lord as we would if we were preparing ourselves for death. We should be ready to give to God everything property and goods, body and soul. We must even be entirely prepared to die. The more we give to God, the more God will give to us. God knows us. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows our wills. If we approach the Lord, the table of the Lord, with such a willingness and surrender to God, God will allow his wealth of grace to be imparted to our hearts in the richest measure. And this is this is imitation of Christ. What What is it but the sacrifice of Christ who was willing to die entirely under any circumstances God ordains? Yeah, you know, I think this is kind of the baseline consideration for obviously his entire life, but also the church's entire teaching with uh, regarding us and the social order. Mm-hmm. That if if we're really giving everything over to the sacrifice of the Mass— if everything is is ready for us there to receive the riches of heaven, if only we were ready to die to everything, then everything in, on earth will be different. Everything will be different. There's not going to be this theological meddling right. in politics. That will seem right. ridiculous. There's not going to be I this... I have come um, to do your will, O Lord. Yeah, there's not going to be this ridiculous prioritization of the material wealth of our family over the spiritual wealth of our mm-hmm. family. There's not going to be this um, this, this um, strange understanding that what really matters is the external effects rather than my own personal salvation. Yes. And I think these are, you know, these are what we can learn yeah. from the saints, and particularly as we're uh, still lost and wandering, yeah. for most of us, yeah. um, convinced by the arguments that he suffered mm-hmm. from for most of his life, that we can then turn the blessed fronds and ask him in prayer, to to help us yeah. to have his eyes. And as a final conclusion, to return yeah. to the thing about children and his children, yeah. that he he mentions parents, catechists can say whatever they want to children. But if they see you doing something different, it's not going to matter. And 
I think this interior reality and his sense of heaven, like that, that is what he wanted to give to the children and the complete yeah. willingness to do what is right. Yeah. And I, I don't know that it was just connected to, I need to show them they should be saints. Like it's, you know, it's not just, I want to impart to them a moral heroism. It's, I want to impart to them the way to heaven, the way to communion with God. Yes. And it's, he compares it to like, uh, being in a foreign country where the path is being destroyed and the signs are being taken down and people are lying to you. Mm -hmm. You need someone who can tell you what the path is. And if I can't walk the path without stumbling from what I know and what, what I have been given to see. Yeah. And this, uh, it, it bothers me. People make him out to be like a pacifist or a martyr just for the conscience. He's a martyr for the, the correctness of the conscience. So the conscience is contact with Christ, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. you know. That, that he wants to walk the path and to show the path and that, you know, whether you're in America, that would be bad according to him, or you're in <laughs> Soviet Russia or any of these places where the culture is not doing the will of God, even in, in Austria, in the, the compromised mm -hmm. state, but certainly under the Nazi occupation, how do you avoid sin? How do you walk the path to heaven? Yeah. And to him he needed to give an example of that, of mm -hmm. following Christ under these circumstances to show that even here it can be done. Yeah. And to give that to his children and to us. You know, when he was beatified, 60 family members were present. Yeah. Uh, and he left where there were only four, his wife and the three children. And now he's been given to the whole church as not, not just to his children, but to all of the children yeah, of God. That model he's trying to give to his children yes. is now. He's given it to everyone. Yeah. And the church has put its stamp of approval on it. Well, Reuben, thanks so much for yep. this awesome conversation. I'm just I'm kind of sad that I'm going to stop reading Blessed <laughs> Franz as much. And um, well, you can really you can uh, and those listening, we can we can pray to Blessed Franz that he will end up as Saint Franz, and his example can be given to the church even more yeah, clearly. Absolutely. Um, well, guys, thanks so much for for tuning into this conversation. Um, do all the liberal things of liking, subscribing, and. <laughs> And whatever you do on YouTube's, I don't think I've ever done that before. But um, if I'm sure I have, I know I'm sure I have. Uh, but uh, but do that for us, uh, and uh, we'll next time. I think I think we're doing Thomas More next. That'll be pretty great. I won't be here for that one. No, you won't. Sorry, but thanks for being here for this one. You're welcome. All right, see you guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>